0: Hi, I'm Kristen Howerton, and I blog at Rage Against the Minivan.
1: And I'm Paul Martin, and I blog at Sophia.
0: And you're listening to Why Partisan? A political conversation between two friends from different sides of the aisle. I'm a Democrat.
1: And I'm a Republican, and we are both passionate political junkies trying to figure out how to have a civil discourse about politics.
0: From social justice issues to the intersection of race, religion, and public policy, we're delving into all aspects of the political arena. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us, and we are really excited to have our first guest of the podcast. Um, this is our third episode, um having shifted from Facebook Live to a podcast. And Paul, tell us who we're talking with today.
1: Yeah, so we have um, Reza Aslan with us today. and um, I met Reza uh, about a year ago. I had started this campaign called the Christian Muslim Alliance. I was reading a book of Reza's um, called no, no God But God, a book on Islam, and at some point I looked at the back and thought, who is the guy that wrote this book? I'd heard Reza's name before, but I wanted to learn more, and I realized he is a professor uh, at the University of California, Riverside, uh, where a good friend of mine also teaches, and they teach in the same department. So I reached out to my buddy, and he put me in touch with Reza, and Reza very generously helped me think through this effort that we have to help Christians and Muslims understand each other. And um, I've kind of become a fan after that because I started reading more of his books and, and um, it's just been a thrill to get to know him a bit. And so Reza, can you tell us just a little bit about, um, you know, what you're currently doing and maybe just a bit of our uh, background for listeners that aren't as familiar with you?
2: Sure. Uh, Well, you know, I guess if I were to describe myself, I'd say that I'm primarily a writer um, and a public thinker. I'm interested in the way in which we um, craft our identities, particularly religious, political identities. Um, My expertise is in the study of religions. And so mostly I write about religious history, history, the intersection of religion and violence, things like that. Um, But, you know, I also work in entertainment and um, used to do a show on CNN called Believer, where I just kind of immerse myself in in religious communities around the world. And And I kind of see my mission as being that of using stories and storytelling to break down the walls that divide us into ethnicities or nationalities or races or religion. Uh, and then uh, I guess on top of that, I'm also a dad and a husband and uh, trying to survive, you know, the world that we live in right now. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. And tell us just a little bit, if you will, uh, about your, your cur- you know, your religious background. And I know a little bit about this, so it's a bit of a loaded question, but also your um, uh, interaction with Christianity, because you do certainly have uh, a background there and people in your life. So can you tell us just a little bit about your your current state of faith, if you will?
2: Sure. I, I, I grew up in Iran um, to basically a cultural Muslim family, the way I think so many religious people are, you know, culturally religious. We came to the United States in 1979 during the Iranian Revolution and that was a time of profound anti-Muslim and anti-Iranian sentiment in the United States and so you know it really forced me to distance myself as much as possible from my culture and heritage and and religion Uh, but I was always deeply fascinated by religion and um, you know and particularly that uh, the impact that it has uh, on society for good and for bad I um, Went to high school in the Bay Area, and um, in high school, I met a bunch of friends who were part of a, uh, an evangelical Christian youth camp. Uh, and I converted to a particularly conservative brand of evangelical Christianity um, when I was about 16 years old. Um, and then when I went to college, you know, I decided that I was going to study religion for a living, and as often happens when you go to college, you very quickly realize that most of your assumptions are incorrect, and that was certainly the case when it came to my understanding not just of Christianity, but of religion in general, Um, and uh, eventually I, I left Christianity, but I was still looking for You know, some feeling of of spiritual connectedness and at the um, encouragement of some of my professors uh, at my university. I went to Santa Clara University, a Jesuit college in the Bay Area. I began to study Islam again and discovered that, you know, a lot of the things that I was learning were things that I already believed. I just didn't really know that there was a name for it, and so I often say that I had an emotional conversion to Christianity, and then a um, an intellectual conversion to Islam, and um, then I, you know, have basically since then spent my life studying the religions of the world. And as I often say, when you study the religions of the world, it's it's difficult to take any one of those religions all that seriously because you discover very very quickly that. These religions are more or less saying the same thing. That that they are um, often using the same same stories, the same metaphors, in order to express what are universal emotions. I think it's important if you do want you know a deep uh, faith experience to to pick a religion. Um, but I also think it's important to understand that there is um, an enormous amount that uh, of commonality in the religions of the world, and that they do in many ways kind of come from the same source. There's a great Buddha who often said, if you want water, you don't dig six one-foot wells, you dig six one-foot well. Nice. Um, and so for me, Islam is my six-foot well. But of course, the point that the Buddha was trying to make was that it doesn't matter what well you get, the water you are drinking from is the same.
0: Well, you know, I think... Um... That has been an observation of my own, having grown up fundamental Christian and having gone to Bible college, and then studying other religions. You know, I've I've come to many of the same conclusions that we're seeing similar similar values, similar similar morality, and even similar stories across religions. And yet, it seems like for the general public, they view these different religions as such disparate, really different, um, othering ways of, of thinking, uh, particularly Christians and Muslims. Why do you think that that is?
2: I think in general, people tend to confuse faith with religion as though they are the same thing. And you hear this all the time when people say, I believe in Christianity or I believe in the Quran as though these were things to believe in. Um, rather than, as the Sufis say, signposts to God, which is the only thing to believe in. Right. I think we have to understand that religion is the language that we use in order to express our faith. Faith itself is mysterious. It's ineffable. It's, a, it's impossible to explain. It is a, a deeply emotional and fundamentally experiential thing. Um, it's not a rational thing expression. It's a emotional expression and should be um, understood as such. But, you know, if you're talking about something that is so difficult to express, you know, as faith in God, however you define God, you need some kind of language in order to do that and some kind of language in order to actually express to yourself and to other like-minded people your experience of faith and that's what religion does it's what religion has always been it's a a language made up primarily of symbols and metaph- and metaphors that uh, you know provide a a, a means to communicate uh, this ineffable experience of faith the experience of of transcendence and I think for many many people they they confuse the metaphor for the thing itself right they don't Recognize that what they are saying, what they are talking about, how themselves use in order to do so, are just a means of conveying a sentiment or an emotion. The emotion is what's important. The emotion is what is what matters. the The way in which it's conveyed is nothing more than a vehicle. But again… When you confuse the two, when you conflate religion with faith, you confuse the metaphor for the thing itself, and so you you start to believe in the metaphor instead of in what the metaphor represents, and that's why you have you know such great divisions uh, among religious people. Why there's at least from you know the the sort of casual observer of religions there is so much um, differentiation and so much distinction and differences within religions. Whereas once you understand the metaphors, once you break through them, you recognize just how much uh, the religions of the world have in common. It's the equivalent of being, you know, a linguist who speaks multiple languages, right? If, If someone hears two people speaking two different languages and they don't understand either language, You know, as far as they're concerned, you know, there's just there's no communication involved there. Um, But if you understand the language, then you can understand that, you know, they are saying essentially the same thing that that's how we should think of religion.
1: So I have a question. The title of our new podcast is Why Partisan? Not bipartisan, but Why Partisan? Where we have a civil conversation about politics, but oftentimes we mix in social issues um, and things like that. Um, Can we talk for a minute about our current political climate, uh, partisanship uh, specifically? Um, And there are all kinds of tentacles that wrap around um, this current administration. Mm -hmm. A lot of people feeling as though there's discrimination and xenophobia and all kinds of other things. What? I mean, what are you seeing? What have you seen kind of in the last year or so in that respect in your work?
2: Well, you know, I shy away from referring to what's happening right now. the, The fundamental divide that's taking place in America um, to talk about it in partisan terms, because to do so um, is to pretend that there are two equally valid arguments here, um, mm-hmm. that there are two sides to this issue. You know, it's funny. We're, we're all having a little bit of a of a laugh at our own selves because of the way in which we've suddenly all decided that we miss George W. Bush. Um, right. 51, 51% of Democrats now say they miss George W. Bush or that they have a positive... Um, view of George W. Bush. And I think we forget that, you know, this was an incredibly reviled um, person, particularly among progressives and Democrats. And there have been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of backlash to this sentiment, particularly from the left, uh, reminding people um, of the, you know, countless lives that were lost because of this man's foolish uh, and ignorant decisions, particularly when it comes to um, the Middle East, the war in Iraq, yeah. the wars uh, across the, the, the region. And, and of course, some of the curtailing of civil rights that took place here in the United States. But here's the thing. Part of that sentiment has to do with the fact that in those days, we had partisan divide. In those days, we were arguing about ideas and political views should you know we give tax breaks to the wealthy in the hope that they trickle down to the middle class now you can say that that's a good idea or a bad idea should we you know engage in the promotion of democracy as part of our foreign policy you can say that was a good idea or a bad idea we have to stop pretending that the conversations that we're having right now have anything to do with partisan politics. Mm-hmm. One side is denying mm-hmm. the dignity of human beings in America, be they yeah. black or trans or Muslim. Yeah, There is no side to this argument. There is only one side to this argument. Uh, it's not a partisan divide. It's not a partisan question. There is no both sidesism uh, here. Um, and so, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who are um, democratic politicians who serve, you know, in, in the Senate and in the Congress. And many of them um, routinely talk about, you know, reaching out to the other side and trying to govern from the center. And I, I, I'm disgusted by those kinds of uh, conversations because, you know, there is no compromise with somebody who rejects or denies your very dignity as a human being. There is no reaching out to that person. Um, and you know, unfortunately, we're in a place right now where the vast majority of Republicans, the vast majority of the GOP, um, are completely willing to ignore. Um, the blatant assault on our core fundamental values as a nation uh, for the simple partisan tribalism of you know right. us versus them.
0: Yeah, yeah. You
2: so you, you're not going to hear me. In other words, you're not going to hear me say, "Hey, we can all get along and let's reach across the aisle and let's you know figure out ways of working together." No. No, there is no reaching to the other side. There is no working together. When one side denies human dignity, there is no conversation to be had.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're touching on something that Paul and I have been so baffled at in the last few years, is that human rights have become, it, it's like an entire political um way of thinking has denied human rights it's not just a fringe group of people but an entire political party seem to be aligned with being okay with the denial of human rights to others and it's it's incredibly confusing because it shouldn't be political it should be humanitarian but it does seem to have become a political posture
2: John Cornyn, the second most powerful Republican in the Senate, was asked point blank whether he would support Senator Roy Moore's candidacy in Alabama. Roy Moore, just to be clear, thinks that homosexuality should be against the law and gay people should be killed. He thinks that Islam is not a religion and therefore should not have any First Amendment rights and that, of course – no Muslim should be allowed to run for any kind of office. And those are probably two of his more, you know, rational viewpoints. When asked whether that is somebody that John Cornyn can actually support, he said, I'm just going to support the person in my party, and that's all there is to it. Uh, That kind of sentiment is inexcusable. To be able to say... That I'm going to put my support onto a despicable human being who advocates the denial of human dignity for citizens of the United States of America because he might give me an extra vote in the Senate. It tells you what is going on right now in the Republican Party. And that is not a party that I think is salvageable right now. So, you know. There is no room for bipartisanship when that is one party uh, that we're that we're talking about. I'm I am not in a place right now where I can advocate for any kind of uh, centrist or bipartisan uh, you know connection with a GOP that accepts Roy Moore and Donald Trump as as part of its uh, you know coalition.
1: Yeah, and I have this conversation often, and perhaps I'm a dreamer, Uh, I've been told that I am one, but I do tend to wonder, purely from a strategic point of view, and feel free to um, fire back on this, but what could the GOP do, given Trump's approval rating of 80 plus percent amongst Republicans, uh, other than, you know, what what could the GOP leaders do when he has that kind of approval, other than wait to see if this Mueller investigation truly has what we learned yesterday which is some very very valid and seemingly uh chock full of evidence Uh, you know, testimony to come and discovery to come. I just wonder tactically, I mean, I know a lot of GOP leaders, none of whom are big Trump fans, but they say he just tweets right into my people's district and it's almost like he just, you know, uh, throws in Kool-Aid into their water every so often and they drink it. And so I just wonder, like, from a tactical point of view, how much do you think that could be true? These guys know ultimately, like... um, You know, um, uh, even Gowdy, Trey Gowdy said over the weekend, and I was very surprised to hear Trey Gowdy say, who's on the House Intelligence Committee investigating Russia, uh, Mueller's a good man. We need to let this investigation continue and let what will come out of it come out of it. So how much do you think it's tactical in in spite of bonehead comments like uh, not even bonehead, vile comments like uh, John Cornyn?
2: But I I think the important thing to understand is that John Cornyn is not an exception, that he is the rule. You know, Bob Corker is the head head of the um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, in other words, his job uh, is to essentially understand um, and prepare for the threats that come from outside forces – to the United States of America. Bob Corker is a serious man. Whatever you else you think about him, he's a, he's a serious man. He has said that the president of the United States poses a national security threat to the lives of American citizens. That's not a joke. That's not a quote-unquote titter a Twitter spat. This is the highest ranking Republican in the Foreign Relations Committee saying that the president of the United States might kill us all, might accidentally launch World War III. Now, and then, and then he says almost every, every other Republican thinks that to be the case. So if you're a Republican, if you're Trey Gowdy, and you agree that the president might accidentally kill us all, And you're talking about tax reform, then you're a despicable human being. You do not deserve to be in the Senate. Your job is to protect American citizens. If you truly do believe that the president is a threat, then waiting for Mueller's investigation Uh, is, again, I think a a, a despicable way of thinking about it. And by the way, let's just be clear about something very, very quickly. Yes, it was surprising that George Papadopoulos had been arrested months ago and had pled guilty a month earlier and had obviously been working with – You know, the investigators, that was a surprise. But let's be absolutely clear. There is absolutely nothing in the indictments of either Gates or Manafort or Papadopoulos that we didn't know about already. We already knew everything in this, in these indictments. It was already widely reported. It's widely agreed upon. So it's not like the Republicans suddenly saw these indictments and thought, wait a second, is it possible that, you know, these people were in some way colluding with a foreign government uh, in order to undermine our democratic process. We all of this was information that we knew already. So, you know, if what you're saying is maybe it's just a tactical way for the Republicans to sit around, uh, wait until Mueller does the job for them and hope that before then they can get a massive tax cut. uh, Well, then. You know, it, that's that's a hard thing to actually uh, to, to reconcile with their their sworn duty uh, to uh, pro- to protect and honor the Constitution.
1: Yeah. And I think what's in, in my in the trenches here in Orange County, uh, amongst the kinds of people that freak, that, you know, live in this particular district, um, you know, it's fairly remarkable to bring up some uh, some. Brute facts, um, just really basic stuff like the rise in anti-Semitic crimes that have happened since the beginning Mm -hmm. of this, you know, I have Jewish friends that write grants uh, to the Justice Department and these attacks on mosques are going through the roof. Uh, And of course, synagogues as well, believe it or not. And yet there's almost this haze that, you know, it kind of goes over their eyes like Huh? What? Oh, but you're just you're just you're just reading the liberal media. And no, my friend writes grants. He's a former defense department director. And he now, in his retired ages, writes grants to get money allotted to these mosques and synagogues because of the increase in crimes. And yet there's this ignorance. It's like people in my world hear what I say, and I almost assure you they go onto their websites. And Fox would be one of the more uh, liberal websites they would go to to fact check whatever I say. And within a few hours, I will have talking points from some far, far right-wing conspiracy theory website. So these times are weird in that way because I don't remember anything like that happening ten years ago when I would get involved in these kinds of conversations.
2: No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And uh, and you know we we live in a in a very dangerous moment. I mean, look, uh, there's always been these kinds of xenophobic and anti-immigrant and racist um, views in the United States. They have been a part of our. Um, nation's history, you know, from the very beginning, they've always existed, and they certainly sure. have been around, you know, over the last <clears throat> few decades, where they've really started to become much more vocal and much more muscular. But they've been, for the most part, on the fringes, on on the margins of society. What is different now is that we the racist in chief is the president of the United States that the president of the United States, that his name has become a racial epithet, that people actually spray paint his name along with swastikas on synagogues and mosques as a hate crime. The name of our president is shorthand for a, a, a hate crime act. Uh, when it's when it's just simply painted, you know, on a place of worship, um, we can't pretend that that's that that's normal. There, there we've never had right. anything yeah. like this yes. in American yeah. history before, um, and that's I think what's important to to recognize. We've never experienced a situation in which had you know a, a white supremacist in the Oval Office implementing laws, uh, using rhetoric in order to actually encourage the basest and the, and the most vile sections of our society uh, to actually rise up, you know, to, to actually cause harm. I mean, this is – it's extraordinary. And this is not uh, anything, again, that, that the GOP does not know. And, you know, to your earlier question, Paul – the idea that you know a republican congressman knows this but refuses to do anything about it because he might tweet at him or it might make you know uh life difficult for him for his re-election that pretty much says all you need to know about the state of the GOP right now
1: yeah i have absolutely no no question about that and it's very clear that power absolute power and even if you're talking about a congressional district does corrupt, absolutely, because it seems like staying in power uh, is uh, succeeding any sense of uh, the kinds of things that Jeff Flake started doing, and Corker, and to a lesser extent, McCain and Graham, Um, but it just seems to be the case, especially with Congress. Oh, and then you have congressmen like the one in our district, Dana Rohrabacher, who might be as complicit with Russia uh, as Trump, but that's another question. Christian wanted wanted to ask uh, chime in on something, I think.
0: Well, yeah, you know, actually you know, when we're talking about the the personal I think what's hard I think for some people is all of this is theoretical and it's not personal, especially for white people. You know, especially for white evangelical Christians. It's this xenophobia, this racism is not directly affecting them and there is like this empathy disconnect. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a mom of black children. And so I can, you know, kind of have some direct empathy with that. But for our listeners who, for whom perhaps this empathy connection is more difficult, you know, what, what has some of this, you know, in particular, the, the Muslim ban and some of the rhetoric against Muslims in the last year, like, you know, for your family, for your community, what are some of the effects that you're observing?
2: Yeah, you know, to first, Kristen, to this point that you're making, which I think is so important, um, it's it's ridiculous to to say, and I and I absolutely reject the notion that you know the people who voted for Donald Trump were racists and misogynists. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. But Trump is a racist and a misogynist. That's right. unquestionable. Right. And so you either voted for Trump. Because you are a racist and a misogynist and you agree with him or because you're not and you don't care that he is.
0: It's not a big deal. And to
2: me, that's worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I don't – it's hard for me to have a lot of empathy for people who when confronted with a lying, lecherous – narcissistic sociopath who proudly confesses to being a sexual predator and thinks to themselves yeah but that's okay i'm just gonna i'm gonna ignore that and vote for him anyway i think that to me is the problem and it's in many ways the definition of you know uh the you know of of white privilege that you can simply say well i'm gonna ignore His blatant racism and vote for him anyway for some other reasons. Whereas if you are a minority in this country, you don't get the privilege of ignoring (laughs) that kind of racism because it will impact you. This is a man who has made, this is a man who has endangered the lives of my children with his rhetoric simply because of their ethnicity, because of how they were born. This is a man whose rhetoric has led to a tripling of hate groups in the United States since the day that he announced his candidacy. Um, so the threat is very real and the idea that it can just be swept aside in exchange for what a Supreme court nominee, um, the possibility of, you know, a tax break, uh, it is the definition of white privilege and i think for white people who do want to you know who who do acknowledge the the racial disparity in this country uh they need to look to themselves and to what they are willing to um ignore as a way of you know promoting their own agendas uh before yeah. they they can actually address the problem that's underlying the, the the country, the fabric of the country.
0: Well, and I think that's why this has been such a, a kind of weep for humanity year for so many of us. Because I, I agree with exactly what you said, that it is just as problematic for the people who knew he was racist and misogynistic and voted for him anyway. And you go, OK, we're looking at perhaps not half, but but a pretty large chunk of our fellow citizens, and it's hard not to feel some despair and some, you know, cynicism but when the, you realize the numbers mm, of people. Yeah, but are, we,
1: we've talked about this a lot, Reza, um, and Kristen brings up this this phrase plausible deniability over and over again, and it's almost as if we needed to have, you know, a one-unit class in every junior high or elementary school for kids and just teach them what plausible deniability means because, of course, Trump, just like Hitler wouldn't come out, like Hitler wouldn't come out in the early 1930s and say, I want to murder all Jews, or I hate mm-hmm. all Jews, or I think all people with handicaps or who are homosexuals or gypsies um, need to be exterminated. Of course he wouldn't do that, but you definitely heard this plausible not deniability, which for those listening that don't understand it, Kristen, helped me understand it, it's basically saying things that... Um, you can't really be pinned down on it. So when Trump gave the speech in Arizona and says and said, and I quote, they're trying to take away our culture and our heritage, unquote, that most people wouldn't really know what that means.
0: It's coded racism.
1: yes. And so I think one of the things that we've struggled with being in, you know, being Christians here and having evangelical churches around us during this election, uh, I'm pretty sure that many of the churches here would never bring up the word racism or racist, because now those words seem to be, have become uh, the domain of the left And yet, many pastors would say, well, we don't want to be political, and yet the word abortion would be used in a church. And so it's almost as if there's this new language uh, that certain groups on the right have, uh, because God forbid they use the term racist or xenophobic or bigot, because those are the domain of the left. And it's just something we've really had to wrestle through, um, you know, over the past 18 months.
2: That's right. That's right. Um, and i think that's i think you you've said it perfectly um and and you know again we just have to go back to where the responsibility lies in order to right this ship and um, you know and i think that it's very important that in particular um white people white people of color white people who are christian um are the ones who, uh, i'm sorry white people who are christians white people who are who are upper middle class uh, that they're the ones who are actually um, leading the call uh, to, to, you know, push back against this kind of blatant racism and, and xenophobia because it yeah. really is a, a blight on our um, country. I mean, I it think, is. you know, Bob Corker said it perfectly that the debasement of our country is going to be the legacy of Trump. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah absolutely i in the last month i traveled i traveled to lebanon iraq um france Spain, and in every country every conversation I had with people in regards to u s politics was just like what the hell is happening i mean it's it's embarrassing
2: yeah it really is and
1: sadly, amongst this demographic that we're talking about respectfully um they don't really have a global perspective, which is part of the very problem. Right. And especially when you start looking at southern states, um, you know, the Trump campaign was was remarkably shrewd in knowing how to rally people in South Carolina and Tennessee and Alabama, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's almost like living here in Orange County. We do have a very strong brand of republicanism, but I'm, if if you know, uh, the lesser of two evils would be this kind uh, versus the kind that I saw when I was in Northern Nevada a month ago, I was I was frightened with the bumper stickers that they were selling in the stores, not to mention, you know, the people that were pulling up um, with their guns. You know, it just it was pretty scary. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay, Kristen.
0: You know, one thing I wanted to touch on um, in our conversation with you as well is because I know that you're you know you're interested in politics and you're also interested in religion, and one of the things that also both baffles and fascinates Paul and I in our conversations is this marriage between the Evangelical Christian Church and the Republican Party.
2: Do mm-hmm. you
0: have any insights as to how we got here? Yes, I do. <laughs> Please explain. I mean
2: Yeah, uh look, we're so as I'm sure most of your audience knows, um a record 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump um, in this previous election. That's more white evangelicals than voted for George Bush, who was himself a white evangelical. Right. And Mm -hmm. not only that, but currently, you know, despite the fact that Trump's numbers are, you know, In in the toilet, I mean, uh, no president in modern history has the negative numbers that that he has. The current AP poll now, it's at 32%. Uh, It's peaked at around 38%. Um, These numbers are unprecedented. Um, And indeed, not only are his overall numbers incredibly low, but uh, support for almost all of his programs, including the current tax cut is extremely low with almost all demographic groups except for, you guessed it, white evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. In fact, currently three quarters, 75% uh, of white evangelicals continue to strongly support Trump. And here's where it gets even worse. Among those uh, 75% they, um, those who go to church at least one day a week have the highest level of support for him. So it's not just white evangelicals, but the more devout you are as a white evangelical, the more likely you are to support Donald Trump. And this, of course, I think is baffling <laughs> to a lot of people for obvious reasons. I mean, we yeah. are talking about, again... A thrice married, greedy, lecherous man who couldn't name a single verse in the Bible when asked to, whose worldview, whose very, um, you know, identity makes a mockery of core Christian values such as humility and forgiveness and compassion for the poor, uh, who is a confessed sexual predator. And a serial pathological liar. And yet, he, is, he receives this enormous steadfast support from a voting bloc that, you know, proudly refers to itself as value voters, right? Um, right. Why is that? Well, there's actually three there's, – there's a few reasons for this that I think need to be understood. First and foremost, um, we cannot ignore the white part of the white evangelicals. 81% of of white evangelicals voted for Trump, but 67% of evangelicals of color voted for Hillary Clinton. So in other words, Mm -hmm. these two people believe the exact same thing. They share Mm -hmm. the same theology. They just have different skin color. And the majority of whites voted for Trump and the majority of non-whites voted for Hillary Clinton. So the whiteness is a big part of this uh you know my good friend um jim wallace you know uh the the founder and president of sojourners i think put it really well he said that you know white evangelicals uh acted more white than evangelical during Mm -hmm. the 2016 presidential thing so that's that's a part of it okay I think there's a second reason too that I think is really important to understand, and that is you're now seeing um, the consequence of this pernicious theology, the so-called prosperity gospel, and Mm. the way that this cancer has begun to rot out the center of white evangelical Christianity in America. For your your listeners who don't know what prosperity gospel means, it's the notion that Um, material prosperity is a sign of God's blessing that what God really wants from you is wealth and prosperity. Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that charlatans like TD Jakes and Joel Osteen, uh, get millions and millions of dollars, uh, for, for preaching that has for years been infiltrating white evangelical Christianity in the United States. And, Mm. It has now essentially hijacked it to the point where a great many white evangelicals simply understood Trump's material wealth as a sign of God's blessing. And that freed Donald Trump from having to do what every other political candidate, certainly every other Republican candidate for president has had to do. And that's actually prove his spiritual uh, bona fides. Right. Trump didn't have to prove that he's a Christian. He didn't have to prove his Christian morality. He's just rich. And that was enough. Right. And right. so that had a big part to do with it. Yeah. But there's also this one other aspect that I think is enormously important, which is that Donald Trump, in a way that no other previous president had ever done, explicitly promised um secular power to evangelicals. Um, You know, he made it very clear to them that, you know, uh, that they, that he's going to restore their power. He used this language all the time that, you know, he would take up their causes, even, even though they were not his own cause that he would, um, you know, uh, address the the things that they want um, in America. The, in particularly their feeling of of powerlessness. I mean, let's face it. You know, this whole conversation about the the culture wars um, is over. I mean, you know, progressives won, right? I mean, the law is on our side. the The same sex uh, marriage mm-hmm. uh, Supreme right. Court decision yeah. was kind of the 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 final nail in the coffin, if you will. And here was a man who expressly promised these white evangelicals that he would give them the kind of secular power that they so crave. And what that did was something that we thought was absolutely impossible to explain. And what it did is it essentially removed the very concept of value voters as, as a category. There's enormous work done um, by um, this, um, uh, this nonpartisan research group called PRRI. It's run by this, um, this guy named Robert Jones. And what he discovered is that in the last election, the, the, the length of the last election cycle, one or two election cycles, white evangelicals went from being the least likely group in America to say that a candidate's personal immorality uh, or personal morality uh, bears on his performance to the most likely group to say that. In other words, they went from the group in America that was most likely to say that a, a candidate's moral character should bear on whether he is supported in office or not to the least likely group in America. Atheists in America say that morality is important in a candidate at greater numbers now than white evangelicals do. Yeah.
1: Wow. And, and an amazing exemplar of that is James Dobson, who said and basically said the exact words, we could never vote for Bill Clinton because of his immorality and his unethical behavior. And said absolutely the opposite with Donald Trump. And he is a poster child for evangelicalism, and he basically said, well, those things don't really matter. What really matters are the policies.
0: Well, you know, and this is something that we've discussed as well is, you know, is it possible that for a lot of these people who hold themselves to be Christians, and that is supposedly the top value, that for many of them nationalism is really above Christianity? That nationalism is their true religion
2: well nationalism implies um, adherence to the nation and this isn't what that is you know the nation Hmm. says that all religions are equal (laughs) Hmm. you know the nation says that all people have equal access to the law that's not at all what this group is saying this group is interested in self-empowerment and that's what we are talking about here you know, Franklin Graham, you you brought up uh, Dobson. Yeah, that's a great example. Franklin Graham is an even better example. Franklin Graham essentially just said No, he didn't essentially say it. He said it very clearly in a uh, before the election when, you know, Trump gathered a bunch of evangelicals together, Franklin Graham introduced him by saying essentially that okay, yes, it's true that Donald Trump is, you know, a a perverted sinner. But then he went on to say but you know what? So was Moses, and so was Abraham, and so was David. Right. Oh so goodness. in other words, again, this idea that you know we can just excuse the fact that we all know that we are talking about a despicable lech that we are saying we should support. And I'm going to use the Bible to to justify that. Yeah. I'm going to compare him favorably to the greatest patriarchs uh, and and biblical heroes, you know, uh, in our scriptures. And again, that's, uh, that's truly astonishing.
1: Yes, for sure. And certainly not a like father, like son situation there. No, not at all. Dad, Franklin
2: Graham is yeah, an embarrassment to the legacy of Billy and Graham. He said something
1: else with scripture, and it was with respect to, the Muslim ban um, and the refugees, and he said something to the effect of, "You know, scripture doesn't really have much to say about, um, you know, immigration."
2: Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I put well, this on Twitter. Robert Jeffers, who is uh, described as Trump's chief evangelical advisor, said that he would prefer Trump to quote some to a candidate that. Um, expresses the values of Jesus. Wow! So you know, this is this. We're talking about cult-like behavior here. This it isn't is. just uh, you know a, a bastardizing of the Christian message. This is what this is what cult uh, members do. This is how cult members speak.
1: Cult members, and if if one just gives a real basic study of the rise of Hitler, and people at this point usually say, "Well, you know, you're you saying Donald Trump's Hitler?" No, but if you look at the nationalism, if you look at the nativism, if you look at the you know the the um, a message based on economic prosperity. Uh, based on uh, uh, having big rallies, uh, charismatic rallies, even when you're in office, there are some characteristics that all you have to do is just study, you know, Google two or three fascists, and it's very clear uh, that he's not doing anything original. Unfortunately, Americans, to a large part, don't know their history.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right.
0: Well, you know, it's it's a tricky space to be in as a Christian— Um, because, you know, I, I know after the election, so many of us, when we heard those numbers that you mentioned, the 81% just felt like, you know, I don't know how I even fit anymore. I don't, I don't know that I can even, and I, I, um, am a huge fan of Jim Wallace and had a conversation with him a few years ago about whether or not he still considered himself an evangelical. And at the time he had this was prior to the um, to the election, but he had said, you know, I'm gonna like they can pry it from my cold, dead hands, essentially. you know, He really felt like he wanted to stay and be an evangelical. Um, whereas for for people like me, I've kind of jumped ship and can't identify that way. But I think, Paul, that's an interesting analogy to where you're at as a Republican and feeling like, do I jump ship or can I try to write the ship while I'm on it?
1: Yeah. And I have, I mean, Mm -hmm. I have, you know, people like Matthew Dowd begging me to run as an independent. Um, I think there's a part of me that feels like, no, you guys left the party. I'm not leaving the party. Dana Rohrabacher left the party. And again, it could be ignorance Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, wishful thinking, but uh, I want to think that there are some very, precious tenets in classic conservatism, um, in the spirit of and again, people are going to argue whether Lincoln was truly a conservative, but I, you know I kind of using a gross metaphor, but if every republic disgruntled Republican who thinks like I did switched to the left, then what's left other than well, I mean maybe that's the argument being left being made, but I I, I just... Your, your, int- your, your first statement, Reza, about there being a bipartisan conversation is riveting to me. I don't think I've heard you—I haven't heard you talk about that before, but there really isn't—and I've written about this extensively—there really isn't a conversation to have between left and right when you're talking about racism, when you're talking about saying the people marching as neo-Nazis have really good people on their side. I'm in right. agreement and remain, I think, still numb— between that and the Arizona comment about them trying to take away our culture and right. our heritage. And, and, and pardoning Arpaio. And where do we end? I mean, where do yeah, we end?
0: It just keeps coming.
1: Arpaio. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been
2: stimulating for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
2: Thanks guys. Uh, (laughs) Sorry if I didn't make you feel any better, but yes.
0: (laughs) uh, (laughs) Well, let's (laughs) now that we all feel horrible about the country. (laughs) Well, you know what, actually I want to end with this question. Um, And maybe, you know, maybe we can leave our listeners with, with some kind of a touch point, but Reza, you know, for you as someone who has sort of bridged this gap between, you know, growing up Muslim, a conversion to Christianity, kind of coming back around, For those of us who may identify as Christian, who really feel disquieted and and disconcerted by the divide between Christians and Muslims as it stands right now, like what advice would you give us to try to bridge that
2: divide? You know, I think the important thing is to understand that going back to what we had said before, that while we may speak different languages, that we share the same values and If we act upon those values, which is what we're supposed to do anyway, then we'll be natural allies, you know, against those who who seek to dehumanize and to devalue, um, you know, human beings. Um, And so that's what I always say is, is focus on the values that unite us. That's good. Okay, well... Great. We
1: so appreciate your time. We're big fans of yours. And thank you for all the work that you do, um, the good work that you do, Reza. It's um, humbling to to hear you and and just watch your journey. And for those of our listeners
0: who would like to read more from Reza, um, we would encourage you to check out his website, RezaAslan.com. That's R-E-Z-A-A-S-L-A-N. And you can also check out his fascinating book, God, A Human History, on Amazon and pretty much wherever you buy books. Thanks, guys. Be sure to subscribe to Why Partisan on iTunes and check us out on the web at whypartisan.com. A big thanks to Shepherd Audio for providing our intro music.